Welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on news, culture, and politics, where it's always our mission to arm you with the tools you need to cut through the media misdirection and resist the mononarrative. Please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you are. We do cover a variety of topics, so feel free to use the chapter marks below to find the subject that you are most interested in. This week, we're going to be diving into a few key topics from the past week, including the winners and losers from the second Republican clown show. I mean, primary debate this week uh, also marks one year since the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline and a wild new report points the finger at Ukraine for its execution. We will get into that here to talk about those topics and more are my esteemed colleagues, David Rand and Kyle Mack. How are you guys doing great? Happy human action day. What is that? Yeah, it's, it's Ludwig von Mises birthday. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. which is kind of where the namesake for the show comes from too right so. he wrote a treatise about economics well, praxeology rather called human action and it dr- greatly shaped my ideological formation awesome and if you haven't read it check it out although it is very dense human yeah, action yeah. there's a there's a um, bob murphy wrote a study guide that really helps if you want to get through it that way and then there's also kind of like summaries that have been done by it maybe we should do a summary sometime maybe we should It'd be fun yeah We would love to invite you to join us on Discord um, to let us know what you'd like us to talk about and uh, join in on the conversation. So check out the show notes or the description below the video. Click the link, jump into the Discord. We'd love to have you part of the conversation. Okay, let's jump into our deep dive topics. Top of the bill here, the second GOP primary debate. Once again, sans Trump uh, wasn't there to defend himself from some pretty scathing attacks from the likes of Chris Christie and others. Um, how did you guys feel about this debate? David, what was your what was your overall impression of what went on there? It kind of felt like a rerun. It kind of felt like watching a Seinfeld episode. And the whole time you're like, did I already watch this one? It feels very familiar. Uh, there was a couple different dynamics but that were different. But the overall, like, the talking points were largely the same. What they talked about didn't really change that much. I didn't really feel like a lot of new information got came out. Like, maybe I'm just being pessimistic. It was kind of towards the end of the week and I was in a bad mood maybe. But I, I just did not... I, I didn't get a lot out of it. Um, one dynamic that I thought overall was DeSantis came across a little bit better. Vivek didn't attack as much and was attacked even more. And I'm not sure if that really made a difference. And uh, Nikki Haley was more shrill and, and uh, Christy, Chris Christie was Chris Christie. You know, he attacked Trump the whole time who wasn't even there. So it's like it yeah. seems... Tim Scott was also way more aggressive because he was basically a non-factor in the previous debate, but he was like very attacking. That's right. Um, throughout the entire thing, uh, like in a very annoying fashion to me, it, it, it felt like ugh, like it was very cringe to me. I think really Tim Scott's real weakness is, despite being a U.S. senator and, and a very nice guy, um, he just doesn't have a lot of depth on some of his attacks. No. Like he would make an attack and then just not have anywhere else to go with it to un- explain it to everyday people. It's hard for me to really describe, but it was it definitely looked like he needed better prep at mm. minimum. I tuned in a little late, so I, my perception might have been skewed, but I feel like when I tuned in, there he didn't talk for like maybe 20, 30 minutes. Like he didn't get uh, a question sent his way for quite a long time. And there were a few candidates like that. You know, um, a Burgum was, was definitely part of that camp, although I think he started to get some questions sent his way towards the end of the debate. But it led to all of this like shouting over each other. Like they all wanted to answer all the questions and they just ended up being this like cacophony of yelling that d- obviously didn't make for very good TV. I mean, I was laughing my ass off at it personally because I was like, this is ridiculous, you know? Uh, 
a lot of it really felt like there was like a super PAC memo for strategy that went out to a bunch of people. And it's like, whenever the Brown kid's talking, just start talking over him, make it look like, make it like bad TV so that the moderators just move on and he can't respond back. <laughs> like, mm. that's what it felt like to me, which is like, anytime Vivek was saying something, it's just like, like you were saying, Nikki Haley was very shrill throughout the whole thing. It was like, it was Nikki Haley or Tim, Tim Scott would just, start, were just like going over top of him. And Vivek couldn't really explain himself. He couldn't explain any of the attacks. And it was, uh, it was awkward. It just felt very awkward. Yeah, I have to say, I think Nikki Haley definitely had some serious Karen energy. Very much so. Yeah. Deep. In fact, can we can we pull up that meme that we had made just for this just for this special event? Oh, uh, I don't have that. It's um, in Discord. Yes. You know where to find it. <laughs> yes. Come find all of our custom memes on Discord. <laughs> yeah. We have a we have a in house <laughs> memester. But this is this is our first invite to the Discord, so we're really hoping that folks jump jump in, and then uh, I like it if we if we get some good engagement, we'll be able to do a poll. Which ones? Which issues should we dive in on? Because if you don't want to hear about the Republican primary debates, obviously I skipped this part, but uh, maybe you could let us know what you want to hear about. Yeah. Oh man, I'd like to yeah. talk over the manager, please. She says wearing the signature Karen haircut. <laughs> also, I mean, and not to just rag on Nikki Haley. Okay, actually, to just <laughs> rag on Nikki Haley, the outfit man. She you didn't like it again? No. Do you have a picture no. of it, Kyle? Can you find it? Come on, get on it, Kyle. Get, 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 we'll, we'll, get get, we'll, we'll get there when we're on the video. Let's see right, right. Jamie, right. Jamie, pull it up. <laughs> Is that we the have video? a video of her? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, we can we can get into those. But I, I, okay. So one thing. One thing. Would it be better if these other candidates, other than Vive, because I haven't seen a single other one, just did long form interviews so we could actually figure out who the heck they are? I mean, it's it, we are so spoiled with long form interview formats now yeah. that like anytime I'm watching something because this was on Rumble, but it was sponsored by Fox News or Fox Business. So it was corny and short and unprofound and not deep and shallow. And just it was just it just wasn't good. You know, like it was it seemed like a big waste of time at the end of the day. I think you could probably with the exception of DeSantis, maybe you could correlate the candidates that are. I mean, primarily Vivek, uh, the candidate that is going on the most media within the Republican primary field, uh, going on the most podcasts and spending the most time talking directly to people in long form has the best poll numbers, you know, and obviously DeSantis was sort of touted as this, you know, new version of Trump or whatever. And I don't know. I don't think he's living up to that. I thought he did better in this debate than he did in the last one. But it certainly seems like Vivek is still just sort of running away with with the actual support of the people because he's actually talking to the people and letting them know in depth with clarity what he plans to do to run the country. The rest of them are just talking in sound bites. And I think people see clear through that. And importantly, who he is, right? Like that you can't, it's hard to fake, you know, that many hours of content, right? Like to put on a character for that much hours. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these candidates are afraid to get into this new way of campaigning. I suspect DeSantis's support levels aren't changing really, despite what he does, because most of the people who are supporting DeSantis and the Republicans, when because it's different if you look at the general public versus Republicans, most of the Republicans are supporting DeSantis or coalescing around him because they've already leapt to the conclusion, and that's likely unlike it's going to change, that he's the best guy to beat Trump, and that's the only reason why they support him. Yeah, the not Trump vote. And then from there, it's just like what he can do to try to pull together and maintain that coalition and pu- and then finally reach out and get some actual Trump supporters onto his side. And I think that I suspect that's why he talked about Ukraine the way he did this time versus the way he has in the past, which is a very hedging, hedging bet. Do we want to watch that? Sir, we, we, we will have to cut your mic and I don't want to do that. I don't. 
So, Governor DeSantis, let me go to you. Experts say President Putin has ordered assassinations across Europe, cheated on arms control treaties with the U.S., and seeks to work with China to force our decline. President Reagan believed that if you want to prevent a war, you better be prepared to fight one. Today, the Republican Party is at odds over aid to Ukraine. The price tag so far is $76 billion. But is it in our best interest to degrade Russia's military for less than 5% of what we pay annually on defense, especially when there are no U.S. soldiers in the fight? It's in our interest to end this war, and that's what I will do as president. We are not going to have a blank check. We will not have U.S. troops, and we're going to make the Europeans do what they need to do. But they've sent money to pay uh, bureaucrats' pensions and salaries and funding small businesses halfway around the world. Meanwhile, our own country is being invaded. Uh, We don't even have control of our own territory. We have got to defend the American people before we even worry about all these other things. And I watch these guys in Washington, D.C., and they don't care about the American people. They don't care about the fentanyl deaths. They don't care about the communities being overrun because of this border. They don't care about the Mexican drug cartels. So as commander in chief, I will defend this country's sovereignty. With a question format like that, Is it hard to believe that she hosted a Clinton Foundation event a week before the debate? Think about it. She makes it seem like some weird amount of Republicans don't support Ukraine spending. 70% oppose Ukraine spending. This isn't a, this is like a consensus issue in the Republican Party and it's becoming a consensus issue for the entire public where about almost 60%, it's 55 to 60%, depending on the poll you look at, oppose Ukraine spending at this point because of the points he points out. We have our own problems. But additionally to that, maybe it's cutting through to people like the whole unprovoked narrative is complete BS. Maybe it's actually coming across to people that they've had time to get access to some information. And so they're not getting it from Fox Business that this was not out of the blue, that this is a long history in a very complicated situation that can't be boiled down to Russia bad, Ukraine good, blah, 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 blah. So this, this, and the question is, is did he answer that strongly enough in a way that would actually court Trump voters? That's the question. That's a good question. And, but I would also ask, why is the, the line that it is in the United States best interest to degrade the, the, you know, uh, power of the Russian military. Why, why is that? Why is that a fact? Why, why are they professing that? That makes no sense. That's what Tim Scott said. Like, and like he, he couldn't go deeper than that because there is no deeper than that. Right. That tell how I know we're just asking questions of one another, but what is the difference between saying it's in our interest to degrade the Russian military What's the difference between saying that and it's in our interest to declare war on Russia? Yeah. Those are the difference. Those are really the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. This is just with extra steps. Well, it's just, (laughs) it's just, we're doing it through an intermediary called Ukraine right now. And the, and the bodies of Ukrainian people, right? We're saying like, this needs to be as long as possible in order to, that your life is the means for us to accomplish a geopolitical goal to degrade your military. What for? Not because, and they're not even making even if you're on their side they should be making a moral case why this is a moral war because a strategic you know and goal to degrade their military because russia bad isn't going to hold on to people very long that does not work i don't think it will you're forgetting but also democracy good 
Yeah, right. Uh, right. <laughs> right. I think when they were saying this is defend democracy, that was a stronger case. But they've given that up now, apparently. Well, yeah, Ukraine, at least Republicans. Ukraine's basically suspended all like hopes of democracy. Right? <laughs> uh, that it, we now know, too, before the war, they were doing this. They banned opposition parties. They were shutting down media that was critical of them. Now we have an American reporter currently in prison, probably a work camp. Work camp. Let me say it again. Work camp. It's a work camp. It's a place where they force you to work. It's called slavery. Okay. Sounds like a gulag. For the crime well, of they used criticizing to have, they used to have the camps. They used to have work camps there several decades ago, too. Remember that time? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the Canada story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The it is it is so disturbing to the double speak in that area and how that all that how that's played out. Not to mention teasing our story coming up. If Ukraine is the one who actually did the Nord Stream pipeline that they attacked a NATO ally. <laughs> and we're going to see we're, like huge implications to that. Like that's supposed to be what NATO's for is to defend a NATO ally. Huge implications. Wait, I want to get back to the first thing you said in here. Dana Perino was hosting a Clinton foundation event. Yeah. I, I, I find that interesting because she's the former Bush press secretary, you know, it almost kinda, makes you seem like the Uniparty's real. It's, it's almost, that's just kind of interesting. It wasn't just if that she was hosting dis- it. If you're she, in the, go ahead. It wasn't just, just that she was hosting it, is that she referred to Hillary Clinton as, what, what'd she say, like, the wonderful secretary, Hillary Clinton? Like, interesting. You know, and not, not to say she should be rude or anything like that, but that's pretty glowing words. Well, for, they pay you enough money, you're not going to be like, hey, check out this this chick. And like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Dana Perina is not going to be like, so what's with the Clinton kill list? Right? <laughs> 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 and it's uh, always that someone who was associated with the Clinton Foundation couldn't ask a fair question about Ukraine mm. and actually give him the time or capability to answer it clearly. I mean, that's yeah. just, it's just. To set it up that way, it was just so silly. But, I mean, typical of the mainstream press. 100%. Speaking of uh, substance, I thought Chris Christie, well, he had one one interesting thing to say. Uh, but, man, his dunk on Trump was the real highlight for me, I have to say. Uh, do, do we have a clip of that? I guess we, we may Wait, not. Are, what, what, the, what are you wanting to go to? Well, just for wanting, the fighting words. Just going in order. Um, okay, so the, the dunk on Trump is not this clip. That, right that's here. fine. That's okay. fine. Oh, but we, we got to watch that. We really do. Need but, but, but like, which one are we going to is my question. Dude, the only dunk that matters. <laughs> this is a fucked podcast. <laughs> this really is so sideways. You're going to have to Every edit. Every time so. something goes wrong, Kyle just goes like, God damn it. I have to edit this journey That's another now. five minutes of my life right there. It's like, uh, I, I want to watch the, the Donald Duck clip. I thought that yeah. was like the funniest thing that Christy had said. And I don't think that he meant for it to be funny, but everything okay, about it was that, hilarious. I think he did. I think he did. I think I thought he was meaning it to be teasing, funny, make his point. It's a very Trumpian thing. Yeah, right? it's like it a very is. he's trying to sleepy Joe. Hundred percent. He's trying to use Trump's tricks against him. Yeah. But just the look on his face at the end didn't convince me that he was being funny. It it looked like he was trying to like actually get a dunk on him. And well, well, I don't think those are mutually exclusive, are they? Maybe not. Yeah, be funny while actually insulting. That's the goal. I suppose. Yeah, because otherwise you're just being mean. But if you're doing, if you're being funny while you're doing it, that's even, that's even better. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that. No one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. <laughs> just staring down the barrel. How about them apples, bud? He's like, we workshopped this for hours, hours in the mirror, staring it down. The staffer in the back who wrote that is like, we're going to call you Donald. Yes. Yeah. 
yes, yes. The whole staff just like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it came off the way with the power he, he wanted it to have. I don't think that it was. Uh, Bring up the, the, the polling website on that one because mm-hmm. I think that this really demonstrates like, did that work? Because that was by far his biggest. He did. Um, we'll get into his AI comments, which were good, like he uh, from a policy angle, but from electoral angle, did he do well? So this is the over under. Now, it's important to understand is the vertical is the pre-debate. So when you ask them how good they're going to do, are they going to do very good, poor, or, or terrible? And then you had the post-debate, which is the horizontal, right? So did they a terrible, poor, or bad action? So up and to the right is where you want to be. Down and to the left is where you don't want to be, right? And you notice Ron DeSantis, he succeeded expectations. Vivek did, but not in the, uh, not afterwards. People thought he was going to do better than he actually did. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. I think that I would agree with that. I, I didn't think that Vivek won this debate per se. I thought Ron DeSantis definitely looked better. Yeah. But I think that was by virtue of the fact that everyone was just screaming down Vivek's throat whenever he got an opportunity to say anything. Mm-hmm. It's also just the general hit pieces on Vivek. Like everyone is going after him right now and he's not getting a chance to explain himself part largely because everybody's talking over him when he's giving an opportunity to explain himself. So, uh, and there's a lot of trigger words to the conservative audiences that are being used in these attack pieces. Like he did business in China, right? China. Like all these things, right? Yeah. yeah. And if you but, notice where Christie's at, Doug and Mike Pence, now if you go down a little bit, Kyle, mm-hmm. I think the real clear one is this one where who won and lost DeSantis won. I think most of that's baked in. He's going to, he has the most amount of public national ID because of COVID. Therefore we support Haley kind of represents the old school conservative, neoconservative crowd and where they're at. Ramaswamy is the, is the Trump candidate, the Trump like candidate, the Trump new generation candidate, uh, diet Trump. Is that right? I don't know. Trump light Trump that's capable of doing a push-up. I don't know. Like, or something like that. But uh, Chris Christie, of course, devastatingly bad. Like that is a really bad worst performance ratio. That means a lot of people like said DeSantis was the best. Christie was the worst. And I think what that is, is it's, it's very clear that the, the strategy for Republicans in the presidential debate cannot be to attack Trump. You have to be the person who's cultivating his supporters. Because if you attack Trump, you're part of the machine. You're part of the same prosecutorial media government complex that has been going after Trump forever. So if you want to get his voters, you have to be seen as in his camp. That's why DeSantis is so clearly trying to move the way he is in Ukraine. That's why Ramaswamy has gained the support that he has. Because I think a lot of Trump supporters are saying, or want someone who doesn't have Trump's baggage, who can be a better messenger. And then you got younger voters who are like, wow, someone who probably doesn't sleep with a CPAP machine or something like that. You know, like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. There he is, probably doesn't have to wear special shoes, you know, like, <laughs> like, to, re- to worry about his gout, you know, like it's a very different thing going on with Ramaswamy. Uh, uh, there is something interesting about Christie where I feel like, if the Trump moment never happened, like Trump never even ran for president, let alone became president, I feel like Christie could be the nominee at this point in time for president. I feel like he's somebody that Republicans would have gotten behind if Trump didn't completely like divert the party into a different direction. Mm. Like it, it feels to me that Christie would have 
very likely been a candidate. Like he's got the bravado that I think the general Republican audience really likes, but it's just like, he's part of a previous time where ideologically the average Republican just not at that point anymore. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the interventionism of Christie is just never going to play with that crowd. And he knows that. So I think Christie's real goal here is just to get DeSantis's voters on him. Yeah. He's not, he's, he's, he's only attacking Trump in order to look like the stronger anti-Trump Republican, which is an incredibly dumb strategy in my opinion, because the overall public Republican vote support on Trump is still enormous. And it goes up every time they indict him, 60%. So the, the strategy from there has to pivot somewhere. And I just don't see where he's going with it. And of course, Pence, I don't, I can't really explain why Pence does so badly. On every one of these. He sucks the air out of the room every time he talks. Like, there's this awkward quiet that comes in. He's just like, he gets everybody like down onto a very low level and then he meanders through some sort of a story. And it's just like, oh, it's very cringe. It's like old school politician y stuff in in like a new age where it just feels cringe. It is. He has kind of a Clinton vibe to me, but without the like charisma. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of just like. He, slow and his quiet mannerisms are very bill clinton kind of like stoic does it yeah. in a way southern is it the southern thing it like it's be. like a southern church kind of yeah. way of speaking and it doesn't and it would work i think it would have worked during the bush era yeah. but i just don't think it works in right now yeah uh, for whatever reason because it doesn't have neither vivek's energy nor does it have like trump's like humor and charisma right like uh reagan ran on charisma and humor totally right and i think that's still the fundamental like way to ingratiate yourselves to conservatives i think that it, you know to steel man maybe his approach you could you could view his demeanor as sort of like relaxed confident like that's what he's trying to put forward is like some like presidential energy yeah to contrast maybe like some of the frenetic energy that's out there particularly with all the shouting and stuff going on i mean doug burgum i thought had some really interesting and quality points but he's just so frantic to get the most out of his airtime that he sounds a little anxiety inducing desperate if you only have 30 seconds to make your entire campaign pitch i know (laughs) i know (laughs) it's rough but i I mean mean, poor guy but he's need he needs to build his base outside the debate stage you don't debate stages are a way to differentiate yourself from other candidates they aren't a way to build support donald trump didn't build his support on the debate stage although he had some very important debate moments what got him his support was his earned media his constant state of getting other people to talk about him. That's how Vivek has gone from a nobody to the third place runner. Yeah. Uh, outside of Trump. <laughs> so fourth place runner, really. Th- third place runner with Trump. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Because DeSantis, DeSantis would be number two. DeSantis. DeSantis Vivek. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, there's also there's also a clear element, too, of like, I feel like guys like DeSantis and Burgum there are people that the average candidate or the average Republican voter would really like to have as their governor, mm-hmm. but not their president. Like, and there's some, cause there's a, there's a certain energy that's needed for the presidency because at the end of the day, the president is just a spokesperson. Like that's really what their role is there to be like a face and people want like a very good face to be the person. And there's so like the personality really does matter. Like it's, it's, yeah, that, that's that's all it really is. Like, it's, it doesn't even really matter your executive prowess as you were in governor. Like, that really matters for a governor. It matters less so for the presidency. I would right? I would push back on that a little bit and say I think there's more to the to that people expect of the president than just a figurehead in terms of a face. I think the the president being the CEO of the country like has to be a visionary and has to have a direction. You know, he has to be able to rally people behind his mission, right? 
that is starkly contrasted with the ability to be a good uh, executor of plans, right? A real good like governor in that sense. So I think Burgum and DeSantis have that side, but they don't have the visionary side, but Ramaswamy is coming in with his vision for like reuniting America, talking about, you know, this new narrative, this new story about what we're all about. And I think that is, is capturing people also. Well, and that's what 2016 was too, right? With the whole MAGA movement was a vision of America's a certain way right now. I'm going to get America to a better place. Right. And, and there's a kind of a callback to make America great again, Mm -hmm. because we used to be awesome, but everybody feels like we're degrading. And so here's the vision moving forward. And unfortunately, a lot of the Trump movement is just like, I'm just going to fire them all. And, but like, it didn't really pan out. Right. And that's the executive experience question, right? He thought he could run it like a business and everyone was just going to like follow him because they're the employees, Mm -hmm. but that's not how it works. Right. And that's that, that's the executive's decision, but that's also it's that your state agencies don't have the same rules your federal agencies do, right? So, like, I think having a clear case of how you're going to take on the deep state is more important than just saying, oh, I'm going to say the Republican thing, which is I'm going to take on the deep state. But policy does matter. For example, we have the issue on artificial intelligence right now. And, you know, we've been talking about how this is the next frontier of regulation questions because AI is going to so substantially change the way labor markets work, the way, you know, production works, the way everything works. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to treat it like the internet where we're going to encourage innovation or are we going to crack down on it and make sure that it can't eliminate any jobs right? or, or whatever, like, you know, panic, worried about, you know, Terminator type questions. Chris Christie, and I and I and one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this is because I didn't want to come across like all the other candidates have no good ideas. Chris Christie actually did an excellent job with this particular clip. I wanted to follow up on this because 22% of American workers fear their jobs will be lost to a robot. And you said in the past that you, the free market is the way to go. Would you retrain workers who lose a job to artificial intelligence and to do what? Well, look, what I think artificial intelligence offers us is an extraordinary opportunity to expand well beyond the productivity that we have now and to have Americans be able to be involved in that revolution, Dana. You know, each time we have shown incredible innovation and progress in this country, what we've done with it is to expand all kinds of new, even unthought of opportunities for folks. Yes, we have to do retraining for folks who lose some of their jobs. And we should be doing that. And we should have more training available, both at the county college level and the local level for people to be able to access it. So yes, I would be in favor of that. But this is a much bigger issue than that. We can't be afraid of innovation. America has been the great innovator of this world over the last 250 years, a technological innovator, a manufacturing innovator, and a freedom and governmental innovator. And that's why America has to continue to stand strong in the world, pro-innovation, pro-progress. And I will tell you this, as President of the United States, what I will do is to make sure that every innovator in this country gets the government the hell off its back and out of its pocket so that it can innovate and bring great new inventions to our country that will make everybody's lives better. Mr. <laughs> Dude, you took your words right out of my mouth. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> uh, oh, man. By the way, I can't remember who said this. It was when one of my group chats, someone was like, if Trump passes up the opportunity to fire back and call him Christy Cream, it's a missed opportunity. <laughs> and boy, w- w- would it be a missed but opportunity. But he's right. The only he's way right. he could he's have right. answered that question better if I was his debate pre- pre- uh, de- prep team would be to say, you must mention China. And the reason why we don't want to regulate AI is because if we don't, 
if we if we don't have a hands-off innovation approach to AI, China will overtake us in AI development. And then where's all of the AI development going to happen? It's going to be in China. So the concern about jobs is dumb because they don't know anything about economics of Fox Business, apparently, because this is supposedly a finance channel. But you don't know that the candle makers losing their jobs to light bulbs didn't mean more unemployment. What created more unemployment was minimum wage and unionizing and things like that. But the Chris Christie answer there was exactly right. And I totally applaud true. him for actually well, taking absolutely. the brave stancer because what he could have done is the populist thing. He could have got out there and said, like, absolutely, we got to crack down all this scary AI stuff because that would appeal to boomers more, frankly. Totally. But he gave the right answer. He's, he's getting pretty big donations from tech, too. So I think that there's some of that that's involved. Um, but uh, Christie's comments here, I, I actually think that this might be one of the reasons why Christie's did poorly in the debate though because mm-hmm. I, I think that this is a very big problem is that a lot of the voter base in general are very luddites on the new technology that's coming because of the jobs issue yeah. so like this could be one of the things that are actually a negative against him in the public light but although i agree like like people shouldn't be luddites about new technology new technology is going to get us through all of these challenges that, that we have going forward and to what you said there about he should have mentioned china i think that's completely correct because like I talk with folks over in East Asia on, on the tech side, like every day and some of the new innovations that are coming out of like China, Japan, Malaysia, India right now, it is incredible. And it seems every day, it seems like there's like a new thing that's coming forward in America right now of like the bureaucracy here that's trying to crack down on AI, crack down on crypto, crack down on all these important industries that are coming up right now. And it's like, we need some sort of, solid regulatory clarity here in the country. Otherwise it's just like, everybody's going to be moving offshores. Everybody. Cause mm-hmm. it's, it's very unclear on what's possible and what, what innovators can do right now in this country. Um, so yeah, props to Christy on that, even though I dislike the man. Yeah. Props you, to him. you have to, you have to separate the strategic from the policy. That's true. And you got to separate like the, the strategy from the person's innate charisma. Right. And I think we kind of think of three big buckets and each candidate's kind of navigating across those. Um, but the candidate who does best across all three of those, according to Joe, is obviously Vivek Ramaswamy. Oh, according to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, you accuse me of accuse me of being a fanboy. Well, you know, we we uh, we showered him with a lot of praise in that one episode, and uh, that's because he killed it. He, he did, did kill he it. So he did so good. He Especially did kill it. after watching this one, you realize how much better he did in the last one because he had like the best. Like you, I can still remember things from that first debate, you know, but I don't remember anything from him on this debate, really, other than the transgender thing. Well, there there was the one thing that did come up that I thought he really nailed, um, and that was when he was attacked for speaking to uh, Gen Z and speaking to the younger generation by engaging on TikTok, you know, with this fear mongering idea that like TikTok is this, you know, Chinese spy uh, app that's, you know, banned on government devices and this sort of thing. They sort of tried to to pin him for, you know, somehow working with China or something like that because he was using TikTok. And, and then he got, you know, a lot of support from, you know, the millennial generation and Gen Z for, for actually engaging. And he, I think he had a great answer well, to that as well. If we want to, b- before we jump into the video too, I also want to comment, cause we were talking about this prior of uh, Jake Paul, who's big, 
you know, millennial Gen Z influencer, right? Not Bo- just big, boxer and stuff. enormous. Huge, yes. yeah. Yes. Um, he tweeted out that he wants to help out the outsider candidates, being both Vivek Ramaswamy in the GOP and RFK in the Democrat, on helping them with their social media outreach to young people. So it is interesting to see figures like that that are kind of jumping on board these outsider candidates mm. because, and I also think it shows like the youth are kind of not with these older polished politician-y candidates like the youth seems to be wanting these outsider candidates too so i see that definitely i mean maybe it's just the fact that we want somebody who is uh, a little more vital right and not standing up there having complete you know brain lapses in front of a, a microphone or you know making votes but having to be told you know rest in peace diane feinstein to vote the right way right, right. maybe it's just By that we want somebody who's actually a little bit relatable right yeah TikTok is banned on government-issued devices because of its ties to the Chinese government. Yet you join TikTok after dinner with boxer and influencer Jake Paul. Should the commander-in-chief be so easily persuaded by an influencer? So the answer is I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans where they are. So when I get into office, I've been very clear. Kids under the age of social, under the age of 16, should not be using addictive social media. We're only going to ever get to declaring independence from China, which I favor, if we actually win. So while the Democrats are running rampant, reaching the next generation three to one, There's exactly one person in the Republican Party which talks a big game about reaching young people, and that's me. And let me level with all of you. I'm the new guy here, and so I know I have to earn your trust. What do you see? You see a young man who's in a bit of a hurry, maybe a little ambitious, bit of a know-it-all, it seems, at times. I'm here to tell you, no, I don't know it all. I will listen. I will have the best people, the best and brightest in this country, whatever age they are, advising me. We will be probably many of the people on this stage included. That's how I built my companies. I want to be challenged. I want people who disagree with me. That's what makes America great because we're not a perfect nation. We're founded on the pursuit of perfection. That is what makes America great. And that is why we will end it once we win this election. How do you deal with that criticism that's implied in the question? Like, oh, you're young and influenceable by Jake Paul's like, no, bro. He Vivek has far more money than Jake Paul does, to be clear. Like, and he was more fame, not more famous, but more wealthy at a younger age and more successful on every single measure when he was Jake Paul's age. So why, why would he be influenced by it? No, of course, what it is is the setup. This is a question meant to set up, oh, you're young and influenceable, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, no, you're, you're being ridiculous. Maybe we should reach out to the people. All these boomers up here are going to be on here saying, oh my God, the next generation, they're socialists, and then do nothing to reach out to them and don't support people who do. There's a tremendous amount of people who are everyday working, including us, working to reach out to everyday people to help them understand America, what makes countries successful, all these principles that we talk about on this podcast as we explain the news. That's how you do that. You don't do that by just criticizing them from a distance and then banning the app for adults to use. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. 
His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. I, I don't know that I agree with Ramaswamy on the fact that kids under 16 should be banned from using it. How do you feel about that, Kyle? I, well, I, I'm skeptical of state intervention always, but also I, I do think that there's something to the psychological argument on these social media apps. I think 16 is probably too late. And there's, I think there's a few sociological reasons on why that's probably it. Like I, I, I would say if just practically speaking, if there was to be some sort of uh, ban on social media use for youth, like in the same way that we do something like alcohol and stuff like that, uh, I would probably say it's probably more like entrance onto high school into high school is when it would probably be best because I feel like there'd be this weird gap where you have like some kids in high school that are able to have social media and then some kids aren't. But it's like when you're moving into high school, there's this uh, clear, you're moving into a new social structure and there's probably like lessons to be learned from social media. And it's probably useful for like schools to teach proper social media use. And um, like in the same way that you would have a computer class in high school, like I actually feel like social media is probably better suited in that type of a way. Um, I was like, here's good practices. Here's the things that you should be wary of. Here's all the, but it's also like, this is really good for like marketing and entrepreneurship. Like I think kids at a young age, like you have kids that are starting businesses in high school right now. And like you, and they're doing it through social media. Like that's a very important thing. Like there's good and bad that exists here. So it's like proper training almost. That's important. That's probably like a high school function. I think if you look at Jonathan Haidt's work in this space and the coddling of the American mind, the effects specifically among girls of social media yeah. use and self-harm and self-deletion, uh, that there is a problem here that is substantial. And, you know, I don't think, I think if you have a government that exists to protect people's rights, specifically the rights of minors and the perverse effects of the existence of social media for those people, like meaning the network effects. Like if you're a parent of a kid who isn't on social media, the amount of pressure that kid has to get on social media, how the government could play a role in short circuiting that until a certain point where we can negotiate that. I am open to that idea, depending on execution, depending on how they go about it. Um, I've always felt like the internet is the sort of thing that can be when I was a, before I had kids, I was, I was, I was like, the internet's just what it is, right? It's just a very dangerous place. I, I grew up in the nineties internet, which was far more dangerous, right? Than it is today, right? Right now it's very cultivated and gardened, walled gardens, right? Mm -hmm. That parents have the, the primary responsibility to protect their kids from what they could see on the internet, right? Um, and the, 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 the start needs to be there, but I don't think we should immediately write off any amount of state intervention, if only because of the perverse effects that we currently experience with this sort of situation. And I do th I'd actually really want to agree with you on that one, Kyle, too, that there's, there's a certain amount of like our education system is so static yeah. and unable to adjust to new realities, even as there's all this body of evidence suggesting that social media is really bad for kids at a young age that the schools just have no way of really adapting to help confront this because it's all provided by the government. So, you know, more flexibility for teachers and schools to re respond to this would also know be, would be another angle for the policy response that I 
would like to see someone like Vivek advocate for. I almost feel like some of these social media companies, it'd be an interesting like entrepreneurial take on this or like an entrepreneur to come out of like having some sort of like school social media program that like allows kids to interact with each other. It's kind of like, there's like almost like an everything app for schools. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, there's like an interactivity that can be had with teachers and like, and it can be like a part of the schooling process. Like, I feel like that's where we need to move right now, but it doesn't seem like there's any like clear, I'd actually be curious to talk with your brother, Russell about this. And yeah. like, maybe there's some sort of like, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. A function. Cause your brother's a, a teacher. Um, he's been on a podcast before yeah. you should check out the interview. Uh, yeah, 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 totally. I, I, um, I think I, I, I am, I don't think there's a moral way to do it, but walking in the space of that, the government plays a role. If you're, if you're accepting that first premise, yeah. I think it flows from there that, you know, the protection of kids, the amount of evidence that social media is destructive is so substantial. Then I think you could make, you could make that case. And I, and I think you could do so with a reasonable, um, reasonably consistent. Basis. Well, and, and mm. one of the reasons why I say, I think 16 is probably too late and it's because you're moving into the social, like a new social structure when you enter high school is like, I actually feel like there's like a kind of a bullying point that exists there of like the older kids being able to bully the younger kids because they have the social media and then the younger kids don't. Yeah. And that's why I feel like it's like upon entering this new social structure, I, there's I, like a learning aspect yeah. that comes with the social media. I think the data though is yeah. six. It, it, it really, if you're just going by the Jonathan Haidt thesis, yeah. it should be like eight. 18 to 21 to be clear like we should ban social media for people under the age of 20. yeah but it's it's one of those things too is like like i i, I know a 16 year old that makes a hundred grand a year off of social media and right like, and you're right. like you're like 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 banning it for there's a certain wrong. yeah there's a certain and, fostering and entrepreneurship the, that exists there too that I, I like i like and appreciate and the role of the parent right at the end of the day the real sovereign question here is what role the parents have in making this distinction and then second to that, what role can government play to reduce the amount of unintended consequences of this technology that hurt kids? Yeah. And, and I, I, I think 16 is the right age, personally. I mean, I would say 16 to 17, um, personally. Yeah, I just I worry about unintended consequences inside of high schools of having basically half of students being able to use social media sure. and other half not. But that's why, that's why the ban actually is a good thing, right? in the sense of like disrupting that network effect because you can't because it's illegal is a very different question than you can't because your parents are lame. Yeah, but I, I'm just I'm just imagining this right now is like now you have bullying that's happening of younger kids. For instance, this would just be like one type of example of this. Yeah. You have bullying that's happening of younger kids spreading on social media that there's literally no that fight back mechanism to. that exi- yeah, exists yeah, yeah, right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially because like so like I I was in a small school and um and I was friends with like everyone in high school throughout like my freshman through senior year. I was kind of like and so like from the age of like 14 to 18, you had people that were like mixing it up. Right. And it like to be able to have, it might be different at a bigger school where yeah. everybody's kind of just within their grade, but like at a smaller school, you'd have like half not, but everybody kind of interacts with each other. It'd be right. very awkward. Oh, and, and don't get me wrong. Yeah. Kids will find a way around a government ban. That's, like, that's completely true. That's completely <laughs> like, true. Like to act like it's actually going to work is it's only going to work amongst a certain amount of cases and, and, and situations. I need yeah. to jump in here. Reduce. I really enjoy listening to that, but I, I have to say I am surprised that you guys favor government intervention. I'm not in saying space. I favor a government intervention. Like I'm operating with the, this is actually an important clarification on the podcast in general. I'm often operate like there's like my ideal thing of like, 
I'm an anarchist. I don't believe in government, <laughs> but we are operating in a current state state and paradigm where we do have the government that is existing right now. And, and like, there is that apparatus. Like I'm kind of saying like, if this were to be the case, like this is probably how I would approach it. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm just saying, if you start with the premise that government yeah. plays a role in protecting minors, I don't, see why you would say this now if you're saying i'm an anarchist and i don't think government plays a role protecting minors then then yeah you can be very consistent and say they shouldn't do this um but i i, I don't know if you've read have you read cuddling american mind i have not I yeah have. yeah i mean like it's it's a lot i mean the amount of sheer amount of the case and how much data there is about the negative of, of effects of this is and i don't dispute that at all but i think i would put more uh, right and responsibility in the family court, right? Not just to set boundaries and parameters for what is acceptable in terms of social media use at what age, but also in terms of setting cultural norms. Like, I think we need to put a little bit more responsibility back on the communities to establish that, like, you know, maybe social media for kids isn't right, not because the government says it's illegal, but because families have decided collectively in a, in a communal space that that's not the kind of world we want our kids to grow up in. And, and that's, that's a lot of responsibility. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen overnight. Uh, more than likely, you're going to see things happen governmentally, right? Either municipal level, state level, for example, with Montana banning TikTok as of what next year, assuming that doesn't get challenged. But I, I would wonder, would something like that just immediately get challenged on constitutional grounds and be overturned? Yeah, but I think, I think the TikTok... Um, banning in Montana will be challenged because it's so narrowly written. It just bans TikTok. It doesn't ban social media, which is very different. But how do you not say that? And how do you differentiate freedom of speech? TikTok, which is a video app, and YouTube. Well, right. And right, how, which is how do you say? Strange, right? How, how, how do you sure. make a free speech argument around just TikTok, but not around all of social well, media? Children don't have freedom of speech. To be clear, like yeah. they don't have any rights in our in our in, constitution in, in our government. paradigm. That's in, the case. in in lock. They don't have rights. Right. It's it's. it's con- freely acting adults who are completely who who has the right to exercise dominion over children their parents okay um, so then that's who the responsibility should be carried right with. right so and all i'm saying is i i actually agree with that right i mean i think at the the ideal circumstances we have no government and we have the prosperity that comes from that or a night watchman government that only exists to uh, protect our individual rights the question is is what is individual rights Right. And at what point do those individual rights mean protecting children from predatory adults? Sure. And what does that mean for social media? Right. And that, and then it gets very into like, then the government has a place that can get in there that you can justify on a night watchman state. Um, and additionally, secondarily that like, uh, for example, you, it's, it's, it's much like our discussion that we had about transgenders, right. Rights, uh, for children and, uh, for example, religious rights. So parents had the dominion over the kid. The, the parents that say, we don't believe in medicine, we're going to pray the disease away and allow the kid to die, are they liable when there was a preventable medicine that could have saved that kid's life? Is there force that you would be willing to endorse someone to use to stop that from happening? I think there's a lot of people who say, yeah. I think a lot of people would raise their hand and be like, I'll go save that kid. Similarly, on the trans issue, if you believe that is just medical you know, castration and, um, it's terrible for kids and it's just going to, um, it's all negative. There's very little down upside, all that kind of stuff. As actually Vivek says, it's like, it's a mental disorder that you're, um, feeding into rather than helping them try to solve. 
then you're at a situation where it's like, I, I would be willing to use force to stop that parent from doing that. I think the state should. Perhaps social media exists in that sphere. Just opening the door there. If you're familiar with just how devastatingly bad, because the amount of suicide amongst teen girls right now is scary. Absolutely. And, and don't get me wrong. I've seen those statistics and I, I don't disagree that I think social media is bad for kids. Frankly, I think it's bad for adults. Mm. I mean, and the effects of social media, it's been shown to have, you know, similar dopaminergic effects as sugar and heroin and, and all these other, you know, extremely addictive substances that, that, you know, exist in society. And so I think there's a broader conversation around how do we, in a healthy way, manage the risks of such technology that we're currently living with while also not limiting the potential opportunity that exists there. But I would, I would personally say that it's a cultural issue that needs to be bottom up, not imposed top down. But of course, I mean, I think that's where the debate lies. And I, I, you know, I do commend Vivek for coming out and at least establishing a stance on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, I guess we'll have to see where the debate goes, but I certainly did not like to go back to this debate moment when Nikki Haley said that, listening to objectively the smartest guy on the debate well, stage made her feel dumber. Yeah. Let's, let's jump into that uh, here, but like to, to wrap a little bow on my thoughts on this too, on the stuff. And this kind of goes into the AI conversation with Christy too, of like, if, if I was a young person right now, <laughs> sorry, you are a young person right now. <laughs> if, if I was a younger person, if I was a Gen Z or per, like a Gen Z person right now, like I would be studying all of the new technology. I would be studying, um, social media and how to use it effectively and to like the maximum effect possible of how to, cause we live, we're, we're moving into this information attention economy right now. I would be learning how to effectively use social media, effectively use AI and effectively use crypto right now. Um, and you will be far, more, far more superior than everybody around you right now. And like, th- like regardless of these conversations of banning this or the banning that, like that is where you should be thinking right now if you are a young person because that that is where all the opportunity is going to lie going forward in my opinion so um but uh yeah as you were saying joe the let's 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 play the rest the rest of this little interaction here because uh nikki haley goes at vivek Sorry, I have was speaking. There's one person on this. This is infuriating because TikTok (laughs) is one of the most dangerous social media apps that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say Hmm. because I can't believe they hear about a TikTok situation. What they're doing is these 150 million people are on TikTok. (laughs) That means they can get your contacts, they can get your financial information, they can get your emails, they can get text messages, they can get all of these things. This is China very important for our exactly party. What this doing. is very important for our party, and I'm going to say you've gone and you've helped China stop. build, make medicines will, in China, not America. Me, excuse you me. You are now wanting kids to go and get on the social media that's dangerous for all of us. You went and you were in oh business with God, the Chinese that grading. gave Hunter Biden five million dollars. We can't trust you. We so can't me, trust you. Let we let can't have something. TikTok and I think that we Mr. Ramaswamy, you have 15 seconds. I think. Excuse me. You have 15 seconds, Mr. Ramaswamy. Me, this guy, me. I think we would be better served as a Republican Party if we're not sitting here hurling personal insults and actually have a legitimate debate about policy following Reagan's 11th commandment in his honor. And the answer is, that is what actually makes our country strong. And I believe, I believe in these people, these are good people. 
that's enough of that uh, but yeah. like that that really encapsulates i think what the entire debate was, exactly. was everybody's shouting over top of a vague what's right? and the after effects guess who they found on tiktok doing lots of tiktok dances nikki haley nikki haley's daughter damn her kids right so just like i said like i could see why there's some argument for tiktok banning amongst youth and stuff like that if you're gonna make a case there okay fine but it is way more hypocritical if your daughter is on it while you're saying you know a presidential candidate who is literally using it as a business to reach out for his candidacy and cultivating new generation daughters he shouldn't be but your daughter gets to be come on lady seriously like exercise your domain of influence more responsibly precisely and i think that 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 perfectly illustrates the problem of expecting government to do things that parents aren't first expected to do in their own household that's all i'm saying i think we should move on to the Nord Stream story we've we've got, done a lot of coverage of the of the debate here do you guys want to stick around on this or we do got, you we well, got one more we got to introduce it, you to our it's new, a little bit of a, a little bit of a meme first we, we got a meme, meme and then okay, we'll move it all right because okay. it didn't catch on and we're going to make this meme catch on I, I, I don't know. I was watching the debate on my second monitor and I turned over when Chris Christie got asked this question right here and I burst out laughing. Um, I burst out laughing because I don't know something about his face in this moment. If you're if you're watching on audio, you might not get the entire picture of it, but the video just felt uh, it felt juicy to me. I don't know why. China's the real enemy. Governor Christie, President Governor Christie, President Biden's first two years have brought China, Russia, and Iran closer together. Are we focused too much on Ukraine and not enough on this threat from the new world order? No, they're all connected, Stuart. They're all connected. <laughs> the Chinese are paying for the Russian war That's in Ukraine. It. That's it. We don't the Iranians really want are supplying more answer. sophisticated weapons. And so are the North Koreans now as well with the encouragement of the Chinese. The naivete on this stage. I, I think it's important to get like, he's like, they're all connected. It's the Chinese and the North Koreans. <laughs> like, it just feels like that. It's all, always sunny uh, meme where he's <laughs> yeah. like with the whiteboard. They're all connected, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> this new world order. They're all connected, Steve. <laughs> I don't know. Why I just like burst out laughing when I saw that. It was so funny. Man, that's good. I super expected him to be like, they're turning the frogs gay. <laughs> first of all, he's like, first it's it's the AstraZeneca in the water, and it's, the, it's like, and then it comes in with the North Koreans and Kim Il Sung and <laughs> Chris so Alex Jones Christie is my new favorite meme. Ooh. We need to get make that happen. Yes. All right. So if you're a long-term listener, you've heard us cover uh, uh, the Nord Stream pipeline from the beginning, but it has yet to really sink into the American public. Um, You have Seymour Hersh's explanation, which is the Americans did it. We have a new new, research that's come out, uh, and there was a new story from Der Spiegel. happened this week on the anniversary, the one-year anniversary from the destruction of it. And I do want to note that we... You have to remember about how many people after this happened immediately blame the Russians. And I want to note that propaganda has a meaning. It's not just a word that floats out there that says speech I don't like. Propaganda has a meaning, which is speech that is specifically meant to manipulate people for your political interest or gain or to harm someone else's. And this, like, heritage is a great one. Heritage's explanation for why Russia attacked their own pipeline their own leverage to reduce Germany's impact on the war as, quote, to strike fear into the West. Think about it. It's like being in a gunfight and a guy literally takes his pistol, shoots himself in the foot to make you afraid. 
make me afraid for his mental stability perhaps <laughs> yeah, exactly like it, it is so torturous to try to get there with that piece of logic this is now obviously rank warmongering and nowhere close to the fact like we have no at one year out we have no real alternative narrative other than two the u.s did it and what spiegel came out with this week with a kind of summary report we've had some tricklings in the meantime we haven't really talked about them they've been like the andromeda and stuff like that but they came out like a very systematic report with all of the evidence that they are currently public with there is more evidence out there that the intelligence agencies of both the Nordic states as well as Germany have said that they have and they're working on. Uh, but this is what Der Spiegel, which is a newspaper in uh, in Germany, um, and uh, what they've put out with their broadcaster partner, ZDF. Uh, more than two dozen journalists for the last year. Here's the story. And I, I do recommend people actually read the thing. Uh, and maybe we'll make a short of this or like an explainer video of this because it is like a spy novel, guys. It's like very twisty, turny. And so I'm going to try to give you a good example of what, what they have and what the evidentiary basis of this so that you can make up your own mind about it. And then let's discuss. So six sus- suspects, five dudes and a gal charter a boat called the Andromeda. Uh, it's a yacht rented from a company called Yola Yachting, Mola Yachting in Dransk, Germany, which is on the far. I think east. it's just yachting. Yachting. Yeah. Mola Yachting. Yachting. Yes. Yeah. Did I say it wrong? No T. Silenting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I was getting my German on. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, you're, I got to put a German. <laughs> I got to put a German Draft twist Germany on this. On the Baltic Sea. <laughs> okay. So, uh, there's a lot of physical evidence here. So, oct- octogen is the likely explosive. It's there's only a couple underwater explosives. Octogen is one of the most commonly used. Was detected on the yacht, the uh, Andromeda. The charter fee that you have to pay was paid for by a Warsaw, that's Warsaw, Poland, travel agency, um, a company that has no website or telephone number. I can't even, I'm not even pronounce the travel agency. Yeah, I wouldn't try either. For Yeah. Uh, according to the Polish commercial registry, right? So think of the chain here. Uh, Andromeda, the, the boat company, the boat was rented out at the time, right? A couple weeks before and a few days after um, the suspected time around Baltrops. The the investigators go over there. They discover the 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 residue. They say, "Okay, what's all the records you have of this rental?" They say, "Oh, it was this you know travel agency that paid for it." They go look up that travel agency. It's registered in Poland uh, under a, a, a woman named Natalia A, a fifty four year old woman uh, who lives in Kiev, hmm. Ukraine. Uh, she has a Ukrainian phone number attached to it. And that Ukrainian phone number, when you call it, a woman answered, uh, but then refused to hang, talk to anybody and hung up. And then later, a Ukrainian officer called that reporter back and threatened to charge them with stalking. Wow. Yeah. So they have no physical location in Warsaw, Poland. And this lady isn't trained as like a, isn't like, uh, she, ha- she has training, according to public records, in a completely unrelated field to this. Now, the passport they use, because when you rent a yacht, you also have to give them an ID. The passport was uh, is, is named Stefan Marcoux, a man from Moldova. Moldova is a small country in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the passport number belonged to his old Romanian passport that he had from another trip that he did that's now expired back in October of 2019. So someone took his old passport number, put a new picture on it, and used his name to rent this yacht. Right. So this is this. The the more you go, the more like this feels like spy stuff. Right. Yes. The P 
picture of the guy on it is not 60 years old, which is the how old Stefan Marcu is, because the reporters actually tracked down this guy. Um, it's a 20-year-old military haircut-looking dude. So the photo on the passport is not even the, the same guy? Yeah, not the, not not of Stefan, right? Because wow. you couldn't do that, right? Because if I give you a fake passport, but it doesn't look like me, you're not going to believe it's a fake passport, right? right? So they took all of his information and, and like the number and the look of the passport, and they just replaced the photo with a different guy. So the guy, they're able to track down. They don't actually say how, but I mean, facial recognition software, perhaps, or something like that, is Valery K, who is from the Ukrainian city of Dnipro. Dnipro. Dnipro, something like that. <laughs> uh, he apparently serves in the 93rd Mechanized Brigade in the Ukrainian army. That's because of public records. We know that. So the media talked to his parents, talked to his ex-girlfriend, all this stuff. The guy is completely missing. No one can find him. They couldn't find him. Uh, they tested DNA uh, of his relatives to what the what the DNA DNA they found on the yacht no match. So they don't have. It's not like they, someone could have looked kind of like him and then taken his picture offline and put it on. That's very possible. Mm. The connection is not a close uh, is like smoking gun, but this is this is like a lot of investigation when you think about it. So we do have evidence of its various different stops. Um, Stopped by Poland. Physical evidence raised concerns um, by Polish customs and immigration officials like he was when he was traveling uh, with this. Uh, and they have like the physical evidence of him being stopped there. So it's probably was him. Uh, the The current case is that they get on this boat. They use um, uh, consumer level sonar to detect where this pipeline is. Go out there. Uh, one of the parts that's very interesting about him is that Valeri is part of a youth organization called VGO Skull Sokil, which offers young men training in riflemanship and diving. It's an interesting combination of things. Yeah. Hmm. Why? Youth organization probably has some nationalist ties. It's kind of like a Hitler youth situation. Oh, I was going to say it. Damn, I mean, like that's, and that wouldn't be untypical in Ukraine guys. So like this yeah. Ukraine has a very yeah. twisted long work story camps and Hitler youth program. Those are the things that go on. There, oh right? man. Yeah. It's complicated. If you're dealing in the truth around Ukraine, it's hard to escape the Nazi parallels, right? Cause it's just everywhere. Well, clearly, I mean, Justin Trudeau just hosted one. Yeah. Without knowing it. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. So, uh, the cases they go out there, they plant the bombs. The the it cut the bombs are the, the the steel pipes is another one. There's like thousands of these chained together steel pipes and like four total pipes uh, that actually make up Nord Stream One and Nord Stream Two. All the little sections of that are about eleven centimeters of concrete and four centimeters uh, four centimeters of steel which is a pretty substantial explosion to get through that, right? But For sure. Uh, and, and then they have, but they have welded seams on the inside and two of the four are planted on the seams. Which How do you know? I, yeah, that's a great so, question. So, so the, pipe, the pipe sections are covered in concrete. You can't see the seam, the weld seam in the steel from the outside. Yeah. So how do you know it's there? That's a great question. I think that really undermines the case that the sonar or the tools weren't some more sophisticated. Yeah. Um, but you basically have four explosions. One goes, interesting about this, one goes off at 2 a.m. and the arrests go off at 7 p.m. that evening. Uh, one is kind of in a, the one that goes off, it's kind of in two different sections. Uh, Nord Stream 2 was in a section. Nord Stream 1 was in two different sections. They both go off, but the third, third all go off at the same time. The third, the site D, which is Nord Stream 2 pipe B, uh, 
was a detonation only and only had like a small leak. So there was an error too, which kind of suggests like the amateurness of this, right? Um, but we now know that one of the pipes still kind of works, even though it does leak. Oh, really? So yes. they're still pa- actually able to pass gas well, it, through. It's the- been turned off since before the war, so no one's tried. But it is—it's a much. It, the other ones were literally like blown exploded. apart, right? And, and and some of that is like the pressure buildup. Like as soon as, because remember that like you have a flammable methane liquid next to an explosion underwater. It's going to have a very uh, and under pressure to create the pressure to move the 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 air. Uh, so the oxygen explosions could be relatively small, right? They're, they estimate 8 to 12 kilograms only to make these explosions happen. The rest is all done by the pipes being torn open by the pressure. Oh, sure. And then not to mention the the explosive material that's underwater when it explodes is going to create all kinds of crazy stuff. Definitely. Um, uh, da, 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 da. So we now know a lot more about this. We also know that the Germans were warned about it. And the CIA. The Germans didn't take it seriously because the warning said, hey, this is going to happen soon and uh, around Baltrops and Baltrops was ending right when they said it and it never happened. So the Germans kind of said like, oh, well, it didn't happen apparently. At least that's the current excuse. The CIA who heard from the Dutch, yes, the Dutch, uh, basically, according to Der Spiegel, tried to persuade Ukraine not to do it. I don't know how they know that, but that's what their Spiegel claims. So while they simultaneously say Zelensky didn't know. So who the heck were they trying to tell Ukraine not to do it? So there's there's a couple of really disturbing questions out of this. If Ukraine knew about it, he lied about it afterwards, which is we're now partnered with a liar who's willing to lie to the public. Not a surprise to us in the room, but to the general public, that's very important information. Second, if he didn't know, that means someone else in Ukrainian military was acting without his knowledge, which Der Spiegel says isn't uncommon in international espionage. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is how do you have accountability to supposedly your system of democracy if you can't, if you, if you don't have to tell the president that you're assassinating someone or blowing up an ally's pipeline then are you a democracy? No, you're not, obviously. You're something else. Well, I think this goes into a lot, like, this This happens frequently. Like, we, we've talked a lot about the, the Trump situations, right, where he just clearly didn't know what was going on with his own, like, Pentagon was lying to him about troop movements, all this stuff. Like, like people got to realize that the president doesn't actually know everything that's happening. It doesn't matter what country you're in. This is always going to be the case, and this is exactly how you do espionage, is that there's certain people with certain clearances that get in the know about things, and, right, like, that's important. to. And, that, and that, what that suggests is that democracy is a giant illusion. Yeah. Democracy everywhere or just in Ukraine? No, Ukraine, it's, it's a magic word. America, right? maybe not in Switzerland. I don't know. I'm just saying is that if you have a system that allows for your for your spy agencies to blow up mutually defense NATO countries, whether it's the United States doing it or the Ukrainian military doing it without any democratic check at all, then you're no longer abiding by the fundamental commitment of popular sovereignty that you're guaranteed in your high school history class. When you're taught about what our country is, the assumption that everyone is basing about their country, about who we are supposed to be. If that's all a big lie, people ought to know that. And we operate with this religious commitment to it. And, 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 and when, when the people who are supposedly the ones who believe in it and actually operate on it, it's a big joke to them. If it's Biden, according to Seymour Hirsch, it's a big joke. 
right? <laughs> you know, he actually controlled and decided that. If it was someone in the CIA without his knowledge, that would also be a disaster. And it's the same story in Ukraine. If Zelensky knew, then he is responsible for attacking our ally, Germany. If he didn't know, then someone in his military is, and he hasn't had control over his own military, which is also a disturbing question. Well, and it, it seems like there's a lot of different factions at play here. Like, I'm getting very early Al-Qaeda vibes from this whole story right now. Uh, like, I'm, I'm getting very Al-Qaeda vibes from this. Mm. Well, um, you, you, you mentioned that if Ukraine did it, it would be, it would be an attack on a, a NATO ally. But that doesn't matter to Ukraine because they're not in NATO. But it should matter to the United States because we're in NATO. Yeah, that, that should Which be would mean that. that we should be attacking Ukraine or at least defending Germany from Ukraine. Instead, yeah. we're defending Ukraine. Yeah, which kind of which kind of shows just how absurd the entire alliance system is in a sense, too, because we're like, oh, if we put Ukraine in NATO, it means that they would be protected by the American security umbrella unless we decide just not to. Right. <laughs> like, right, which is like Germany should be protected, which shows you how much we are an empire, not a just a country out here just trying to do our best, you know, like this, like this weird <laughs> thing that we believe about our country in our foreign policy, which is like, everyone just doesn't like us because we're free and we don't really understand why, you know, when we're the guy, if this was high school, we'd be the guy who's like constantly stuffing the nerds into the toilet because they don't follow the rules. And just be like, why school. don't they like me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone likes me. It's like, no, you actually, you just have the Porsche in school and you just like throw the best parties. That's why people like you, but they don't actually likes you. You're just a jerk. Well, and that's exactly the way to look at it. Like the way that I always frame it is that America is the cultural center of the Western empire. Like it's much, it's much broader than just the United States. Like it's this much bigger Leviathan. It's just America is the cultural center of it all. And the military center. I mean, we have 800 bases all over the world. The largest military budget, orders of magnitude, more than everybody else. I mean, we spend more on military than the next 24 countries combined. 24 of the largest countries in the world with the biggest Military budgets in the world, 24 of them all stacked up and they're just starting to compete with us. Well, it's just like all of NATO is just United States extended. Yeah. Right? And, and then that's not that. And what I'm the figures I'm saying aren't including NATO numbers. Right. So once you include that, the supposed mutual defense clause is supposed to say that you attack us. It's like attacking Germany is the same as just attacking Georgia. Now, think about it for a moment. If there's a pipeline to Georgia and Ukraine didn't want the pipeline to influence us our elections. What does it mean for our commitment to NATO if we're willing to let a non-NATO member attack us to attack Georgia? Not, 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 not the Middle East, not the East Country. European Georgia, but Georgia or Florida or California. If it just suits our foreign policy needs in this very moment, right? What does that say about Joe Biden? What does it say about? And then, and then the fact that it's like completely uncovered. Like the Spiegel comes up with this and people are like, wow, that's crazy. Do you know those rioting in Philadelphia? <laughs> like, like, it's just like, what? This is, a, this is a huge revelation that none of the Republicans talked about at the debate stage. It would have been a great talker. They just said, why would we give money to the people who just attacked, you know, Germany? Well, it raises the question of how serious are these candidates actually. Yeah, right? and, and also like just how risky it is to get out in front of that too. Like we, we have a real we have a higher risk tolerance and right? well it's also just risky because you'd be losing donor money too right right i mean unless your donors are largely 
Nick, Nikki Haley was on the board of one of these like Raytheon <laughs> or something, right? Like, like not surprising at all given the like, rhetoric. Like, there's only one, not Raytheon, North Ring Grummet. How dare yeah, you, sir? They're all, they're, they're all the same. They're all the same. But there's <laughs> there's only like one and a half candidates that are actually uh, right. against what's going on here. Vivek and then half of DeSantis. So Vivek, <laughs> when you watch our podcast, steal our talkers, bro. I'm telling you, this is a winner. We can't give money to the country that is blowing up Germany's pipelines. That would be wrong. And it, and it shows how corrupt the media has been about this, how like they are ideology first and truth second in so many ways, because the ideology first part is, oh, it must be Russia, despite any evidence or any rational conclusion. And now all the material evidence is pointing to Ukraine. Well, I, I don't know if you've heard, like, Putin's just a madman. He's crazy. He's, he would even do things that would be against the interest of his own country. Like, he's just, <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's the media never use nukes. It. He's too rational. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, one more thing. An interesting, really insightful piece at the very end, they go into why so many people in Germany, especially the heads of state, want to keep their head in the sand. And I quote, politically, it is easier to live with what happened if it remains unclear who is behind the attacks. The process is not being hindered, but neither is there much support from the overarching government ministries to figure out who did this. That is the most dangerous place you can be as a government where you don't want to know the truth. So you really don't push for it politically. And then people never find out and you can't hold accountable. So like, uh, I don't think our Germany uh, um, listenership is large, but good God, could you imagine how disastrous that would be? If you literally are, have people freezing to death in the wintertime because they can't heat their homes. That is so like your suffering goes up by so much and your own government's like, yeah, but it's really important for us to support Ukraine. So we really don't want to know who actually did this or get to the bottom of it. That's just, it's gross and disgusting and frustrating. Well, yeah. And you just think about, I mean, how could your priorities be so off? You know, you're going to let your own people freeze or pay exorbitant energy prices for what? Mm-hmm. For what? We gotta save to defend Gaia. democracy, man. Come on, and we gotta save Mother Gaia too. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's the other thing is like you're if you're an environmentalist, you have and you support Ukraine. Where are you at now? Where is Greenpeace right now? Greenpeace is actually part of the investigation, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. Are they supporting the investigation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, was, as part of like the overall group of total people, uh, because this is the largest environmental act of terrorism in the history of the world. That that part definitely goes unsaid. Like that's that's huge. Yeah. So if you're if you're a lefty environmentalist and you're looking at this and you've been supporting Ukraine and then Ukraine turns around and and does this, doesn't that cause you to question your support? Yeah. It certainly lets you know exactly where their priorities are. Right. Not with uh, saving Mother Gaia. I also want to know too. <laughs> like we we covered the Discord leaks, but we and I think we noted this when we were covering it. I haven't gone back and looked. But a lot of this, actually, the, the, the fact that the CIA knew and the State Department was operating on this premise is part of the Discord leaks. And that's Interesting. Also, also mentioned the Jaspico. So we have like direct evidence that the U.S. government knew about this and was making actions about so it. So maybe it wasn't the U.S. directly, but the U.S. was certainly not stopping these Ukrainian operatives in whatever capacity they were operating from actually carrying out this attack. So Der Spiegel puts the U.S. in a very different situation than Seymour Hirsch does, where he, he the Der Spiegel case is that the U.S. was on the right side of this, and they're saying, hey, don't do that, even though, you know, what we're about to get into is Seymour Hirsch's narrative. Um, so the, uh, 
and and what the Discord leaks do seem to suggest that the quote U.S. had a had intelligence had detailed Ukrainian plan to attack the the Nord Stream two pipeline. You know, so. you know. Speaking of the Discord leaks, yeah. if you want to leak information to us in our Discord, we just put out the public. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> we just we just put out the public link where you can join us and get and share stories with us. Please give us some stuff that's gonna put us on a. Sorry, I had, I had to. I had to. <laughs> At very least, send us some good memes. Okay, that's really all we ask. <laughs> so, Seymour Hirsch, this is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's the reason why we know who the Milai massacres are. Uh, terrible actions by the u.s army during vietnam uh he's the reason why he he helped break he's part of one of the reporters that broke um abu Ghraib and the torture files and all the things like that so a heavyweight heavy heavy heavyweight of american media going all the way back to vietnam war and uh what was the guy's name deep throat and the um actions by the nixon administration to you know blackmail people stop smiling i said no, the I, word. I was looking at i, I was looking God, at joe joe's, joe's, joe's being a child I didn't name him. <laughs> this is his that just caught me off guard as well. i was like deep throat jesus yeah. what so this guy goes way way back like he's the og um of american media and he comes out last uh, early, earlier this year with the revelation based upon conversations with intel officers that are in the know that america was actually the one who blew up the north dream so one of the things that he notes on this one that also gives people a lot more information that we want to empower you with is that Russia has more than a dozen pipelines to get oil and gas out of the country and for sale. Nord Stream was picked because it could be done with the highest amount of plausible deniability. The organizers thought it could be used as a deterrent, right? The idea was to put it in there and then back channel stuff to Russia, say, knock it off or we blow up your pipeline and then blow it up if they, if they fail. So Seymour's most recent stuff on this says that, um, Several public examples of the State Department officials obliquely threatening Nord Stream. We've covered that in some before, but we have one right here to show you right now. Of These are the things that I think bolster Seymour's account the most because they are, these are like quasi-public, quasi-like, if you had the charges planted and you're saying on behind the scenes, you would put this out as your more overt threat in the press. If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the... Uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. How will you how will you do that? Exactly. Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will. Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. Will you commit today to turning off and pulling the plug on Nord Stream 2? You didn't mention it. You haven't mentioned it. As I already said, we are acting together. We are absolutely united and we will not taking different steps. We will do the same steps and they will be very, very hard to Russia and they should understand. That second guy talking was uh, the German chancellor, if you are listening audio only. What this suggests is this is this is when the planning would be in phases, right? To do this, like they're training the Navy or the the SEAL group that would actually go do this. Um, they'd be arranging at this time the plan to to pull this thing off. And Biden so confidently saying that. And we also have Victoria Newland, for example, saying we're all after the fact doing this victory lap, saying we are all happy that this is now a hack of a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. 
It's it's crazy that Putin would bomb the pipe, pipeline that we're threatening to disable. It's crazy that he would do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you really juxtapose those two things, it's it's pretty stark, isn't it? Yeah. It's, just, it's just interesting to me that it's, it, maybe the, maybe we're all on the same team. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> we're, it's a it's a simulation, so you know anything's possible. So the 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 stated motivation turned out to be false. That the real motivation was, quote, according to the intelligence officer that Seymour has now talked to again, was, quote, part of a neocon political agenda to keep Schultz and Germany, the, the chance that we just saw, with winter coming up and the pipeline shut down from getting cold feet and opening up. Right. It was just pure politi- uh, politics. The shuttering of Nord Stream 2, the White House, quote, the White House fear was Putin would get Germany under his thumb and then he would ne- then he was going to get Poland. Now, interestingly, this week, Poland has said that they're cutting off support for Ukraine. Interesting. Very interesting. So uh, it failed, uh, at least for Poland's case. And I think uh, Germany is now under, you know, a lot of pressure to figure something else out. Um and of course, what Seymour has pointed out to you repeatedly this year is American liquid natural gas providers are making a killing right now, uh, selling natural gas to Germany and tanker trucks and stuff like that to make up for it. Um, and it is it is a it is a real mess uh, that unfortunately, if you spent you know like that short we did, if you spent the Bush years very concerned about you know wars for oil, wars for natural gas are also bad. Uh, and if that's you know, whether it's dominated by the mercantile interest or by the interest just to wage war on Russia to degrade their military, not to defend Ukraine. Those are two different aims. It's, it's important to recognize how much of a disaster Germany's in right now. Like um, Germany had like a record high climate related deaths is, is the way that it was phrased um, over the summer, people dying of heat. But a lot of that is because of environmental interests saying that you can't use air conditions, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then we have like going into the winter, there's going to be probably devastating issues here because is there going to be a bunch of restrictions on heating your homes because of everything? You know, What's just the price? Ger- Germany is, and just the price of everything's going up. And, yeah. and then you have like the breadbasket of Europe is everybody's rioting because they're limiting the farmer. It's it, Europe's in a mess right now, especially that region of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy and, time. And the war has made Russia far stronger on the international stage in many ways because, because Ukraine's been taken out of the picture on the global food market. Russia's making up for that and exporting more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that also is bad. Russia being driven in the hands of China. The the neocons had done this really interesting thing. They watched Vivek get a bunch of support for saying the war is driving Russia into China's hands. And now they've said, oh, the biggest threat is war is Russia and China being together. So that's why we have to fight the Ukraine war in order to keep them from. Yeah. And in order to fight the Vivek's entire stance is that we need to try to come to a negotiation. And part of that negotiation is peeling Russia away from China. And Nikki Haley will once again say, you're the dumbest person I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) But what we need to do is actually just fight a two front war, one in Taiwan, 20 miles off the coast of fricking China. And with this island, it's not nearly the same thing. Like people who equate Ukraine to Taiwan, like these are analogous things. Are, it's absolutely silly. Like you, every simulation, we've covered it before, every simulation that's run on this question, we cannot find a way to win a war against China for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Not without losing everything. And I'm talking like our entire naval fleet, 
substantial amount of our war fighters, all this kind of stuff until we like get everything there, which is a tremendous amount of loss in the meantime. That means the death of sailors and airmen and real human beings, guys. Now, uh, the Taiwan situation is interesting as well because we have this like increased, just like with Mexico, the, the, uh, for some reason, Republicans are so focused on like reducing Ukraine spending. They have to pivot like the hawkishness someplace else. So they're like, we're going to invade Mexico and we're going to literally make Taiwan the 51st state. And like, like this, this whole other thing that's going on, that's also very dangerous and, and disturbing. So I, I want to highlight that for folks too, is beware of folks who are kind of engaging in rhetoric, both those directions. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. When you listen to this podcast, the government will probably be shut down at this Sick. point. And what you're probably going to witness is a bunch of the news media will be like, can you believe that Republicans shut down the government? Never mind that two-thirds of the existing federal government is run by Democrats. And they're taking a hard-line stance on not obeying the Constitution. And that's how we got to here. So what is the constitutional method for funding the government versus what we have now? Bills originate. The government, the president proposes a plan, the, but that's, the, that's more traditional, not constitutional. The House passes, the Senate passes, the president signs. If the Senate objects to the House, they change it and send it back to the House. What we've done is since the late 90s, as you've listened to the podcast previously, is done these continuing resolutions that just spend last year's Mount plus whatever. And so if you're listening to the Human Reaction Podcast, you already know what's going on. You already know what how to think about this. But I do want to know, there's been a lot of changes. A lot of things have, have moved in the meantime. We are now up to, uh, so milk, milk on veterans vast back in July. So one of the great questions that you should be asking everyone who talks about this is, did you know that the House passed the veteran funding and military funding in July of this year? before the August recess, and the Senate has yet to take it up. Very simple. So the House passed a bill out to fund veterans' uh, mm-hmm. affairs, and what did you say, MILCON? Yeah, it's like the military, other functions that aren't like overseas. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so, so that was funded and passed by the House in July, but it's not a, you know passed into law because the Senate hasn't brought it to the floor. But you don't want to know why? Why? Yeah, because it isn't a continuing resolution. <laughs> Because, because it only funds that part. And they're like, well, we want to do continuing resolutions. Because the, the way that they should be doing it is 12 separate bills, right? Yes. And so we now are up to four. We also passed the overseas, homeland security, and state and foreign ops. Agriculture got brought up this week and failed. The reason why it failed is because moderate Republicans voted against it because it repeals a bunch of government paying for abortion stuff. So conservatives, who are the difference makers here, are, have, have charted this, this pathway to get actual conservative policy report. Now, one of the frustrating things, if you look on Drudge or Breitbart or Blaze or whatever, everyone talks about how stupid this plan is rather than saying, hey, the conservatives are actually getting conservative with. Right now, if you're a strict constructionist to the U.S. Constitution and you look at the bills that are waiting for the Senate to be brought up to be funded, you're going to find all the things that the federal government is actually supposed to be doing. Foreign policy, 
It funds those things and it hasn't funded anything else. Now, should it fund anything else? That's a different question. But this is like, once, if they go want to go ag, we're literally talking about 90% of total government spending out the door and funded. That means a 10% cut. These are all good things. But, but as usual, conservatives, you know, shoot themselves in the foot and are basically playing this strange game where they're like half of them don't like the strategy because they don't want to have bad press. The other ones are saying, I'm not going to vote for a bill I don't believe in. I'm not going to vote for continuing resolution. So what are you going to do? And so we're in this place where they're trying to play a guilt game with these folks uh, and, you know, trying to basically get these uh, conservatives no longer to do what they said they're going to do, which is get back to regular order uh, and support a continuing resolution while completely avoiding and not talking about the fact that the Senate is not taking up the uh, the funding bills that they currently have to go. And that's all Chuck Schumer's fault that's the appropriations in the senate's fault simply because they want to do a continuing resolution they don't want to use or what you call regular order right right and the reason why they don't want to they they, they don't like continuing resolutions because then you actually have to debate things by issue area and you have to have a budget by issue area right so you have to have a veteran budget and how big is that going to be rather do that in one big bill where you can hide all the spending all the all the bloat, all of the $33 trillion debt BS, you actually have to go through a process and hold each government agency to some kind of account for what they're doing for how much money they're going to get. And then additionally, that the policy, right? Conservatives, <laughs> Republicans, sorry, uh, don't want to have to debate abortion in the ag bill. They don't want to have to debate transgender surgery being paid for by the... Um, uh, by the military, for example. Uh, they don't want to have to deba- have those debates because they want the media like them rather than running to get policy done. Well, it makes sense. You know, they want to be reelected, so they don't want to give uh, their, their opponent ammunition, right? We, that, 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 that era's changed. Well, they just, they just don't want the attacks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, some of these republicans that are deciding that the most important thing to do is to get best good press and not fight for actual conservative policy are likely to have a lot of problems in the next two years because i I think this is a good watership moment um where you have matt gates who's becoming more and more popular all the time leading the charge of amongst between 10 to 25 conservatives to say no more and that's that's like what the tea party was about that's what all of the grassroots movements that made up the republican party's core support has been about and they're actually doing something about it and then you know the, everyone else is just listening to npr for their opinions about this shutdown <laughs> you know well, or cnn like even fox news is talking about it in not the most friendly way hmm. well th- that's actually kind of i'd be curious if there's polling on what america's like the general public's opinions are on these government shutdowns because it's like every single year we get slammed. There's a government shutdown looming. It's mm. going to happen, all this stuff. It, I wonder if it's overplayed now to the point where the American public just isn't really that concerned about it anymore. Like I, I it definitely feels that way among Republicans, but Maybe. I wonder about middle of the road people at large. The last shutdown, I was in DC working for a congressman. And my experience with that was, largely us doing the thing we are doing to get the government funded to try to restrain spending and the press saying, can you believe the government is so irresponsible? It's shut down. And now you can't go to the national parks. And we're like, 
you should totally be able to go to the national parks. There's no reason <laughs> to close the national parks. You actually spend more money closing the parks than you do not closing the parks because you got to like send someone up there with a truck to close a gate. Well, like, I mean, like, but this is a ploy. This was a ploy yeah. back then by the Obama administration not to be held account for spending. And rather than the press saying the Obama administration is using the spending fight to keep you out of the national parks, they blame the Republicans. That's how the corporate press works, mm-hmm. right? So that's the fear. That's that's. I mean, that's the. Um, we need to play the media's game because last time we lost in 2013, I think, is why the moderate Republicans are approaching it the way they are. Yeah. Well, because uh, I saw a Rand Paul tweet. I was just like scoping through what people were talking about the government shutdown. And this Rand Paul tweet here, he was saying to, uh, to avoid a government shutdown, I will consent to an expedited vote on a clean CR continuing resolution without Ukraine aid in it. If leadership insists on funding another country's government at the expense of our own government, all blame rests with their intransi- intransigence. 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 Yes. I know how to read. Words. I know words. <laughs> and that's and that's one of the reasons why so much of this has been a problem, right? So plenty of the other bills that have come up uh, have had a ton of amendments. And because conservatives have held their ground, they haven't been able to really pass a lot of the largesse that they want out of these appropriation bills moving to the Senate now. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these folks, the one of the big pivot points is the Ukraine war. And Republicans are now have to respond to the incentive. 70%, according to what I saw the, earlier this week, Republicans don't support this fending. They, they think we've either given them enough or we should never have given them money in the first place. 70%. Like, how do you, like, of course, Republicans, if they're going to represent those people, need to actually change that position. And push uh, to stop the funding. And our rep here in Montana, Matt Rosendale, is amongst the group that's, you know, pledged to vote no on this stuff, right? Yep. As are, what do you say, another, what, 11? 12? There's a handful. I've got a uh, list here. Yeah, it, it depends on the vote. Like, there's been, like, for example, today they voted for a CR this morning in the House and 25 Republicans voted against it. Wow. So, like, it just depends. Like, different different ones are getting different amounts. But, yeah, somewhere between, uh, I think the, the the loosest would be this 25. The smallest group would be about a list of 10. Um, but Matt Gates has kind of become the ideological front runner of it. Yeah, he's the center of a lot of this stuff. And he was during the speaker fight, too. It was mm-hmm. like you had four main holdouts. Rosendale was one of the main four. It was like Boebert, Rosendale, and Gates, and someone else. I can't remember who. Then there was a bunch of kind of lingering helpers involved in all that stuff but gates really seems to be the standout person when it comes to these fights and Mm -hmm. good on him like he's got high energy he's kind of young youthful everything he's had a lot of attacks thrown his way too um but yeah good on good on gates for being good on this stuff yeah i I do find it interesting You've, you've got this tweet pulled up another one from Rand paul um and it's a picture of chuck schumer and uh uh mitch mcconnell is that right yeah I don't know. I always get him and uh, the other guy, Lindsey Graham, confused. Um, the Same person. L- <laughs> you're right. Uh, this uh, this tweet says, the look on their faces when they learned Ukraine the Ukrainian government workers would be paid during a shutdown, but not American government workers. Yes. This was an announcement by the Defense Department saying they're going to continue moving the dollars out, the committed previous dollars that were set to go to Ukraine that haven't been dispersed yet. They're going to continue going out while the government shut down. Of course, because why not? Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to look at this and go, the government isn't actively trying to just piss people off as much as possible because that that's what I see as the outcome here. It's like, and obviously the media is going to spin the narratives the way that they want to, but really 
what what do they stand to gain from doing an unpopular thing sending more money to ukraine while we have so many problems here inflation's running rampant infrastructure is failing you know we have we have all these threats of government shutdown closing all you know of these things government services in the united states but oh no but we're still going to send money to ukraine like what like what are they trying to, to do with that I, I think it shows how strong strategically the rhetoric has been like rfk i think has been one of the biggest people on this but like i'm glad the republicans are taking this rhetoric too of like putting the impotence on like Ukraine government's getting all this money, but us at home are not getting this money. And you can and you can kind of just fill in the gap of whatever your pet project, your pet funding thing is. It's just like just always remember Ukraine's getting money, but this isn't getting money. It is just a very good strategic mm-hmm. point to drive home. It does feed good. like a government should spend more money, not less problem. But I would rather it's no, it's purely we, like, I, like I too. It, I too. Yeah, it's the game despite theory. Being, it's the game theory that's yes, important. Yes, here. yes, totally. Right. I would rather spend the money in America, even if yeah. it's spent by the government than not. I think it should be spent by individuals, not the government. Well, well and, and you could you could use it from any. <laughs> like, both. It's a good it's a good attack vector for yeah. some, someone on the left, like RFK, and he can be someone like you know Ukraine's getting a bunch of money, but the money is not going into Medicaid, or you know, like right. or it's it's not going into infrastructure. It's not going into like you could use it for anything. It's just the a border, really good strategic. The border is the thing. one for the Republicans. Yeah, right? like and that'll be kind of a fake, but we won't defend our own border, right? Mm-hmm. Like like. Yeah that's important to to understand and, and, and that's I think also it's, I think reasonable it's, right i mean there's there's been a lot of calls for more homeland security resources for a very long time but we were spending in afghanistan i, I think you know, that like, rhetoric has played a major role in why uh the approval ratings of us being active in ukraine have been plummeting so yeah. hard like it's important to recognize that fact i wish the american republic public responded to we shouldn't get in a war in a proxy war in ukraine with a nuclear opponent armed opponent that has the most amount of nukes in the world and hypersonic missiles because we don't want to blow up the world <laughs> I, I wish that worked but a lot yeah. of the american public is like ah yeah, but the world's not gonna blow up. Come on, it's, it's never blown up before. I think it's important, is like just from a strategic <laughs> element, you have to understand the game that you're playing. You have oh, to understand yeah. the strategic game theory. Yeah. It's like this is often the problem with libertarians and their rhetoric is they're always like it's like they're trying to play backgammon when everybody else is playing chess. And it's like, yeah, your theory is good, your theory is great, but like we're playing chess right now, so we need Magnus Carlson level rhetoric, right? Not not whoever the most professional backgammon player is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd prefer to play backgammon personally, but you know, that's just me. I'm more uh, of a chess guy. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's an interesting thing. Things are so crazy right now with inflation that even corrupt government officials are now insisting that they get their back money payments from Egypt and gold bars. Their what payments? <laughs> <laughs> Influence peddling payments. Oh, of course. Senator Bob Mendez from New Jersey, Chris Christie's home state, and his wife are being indicted on bribery charges. The DOJ seizes gold bars up to a half a million dollars. Our favorite House member today, Matt Gates, had something to say about it. We are devaluing American money so rapidly that in America today, you can't even bribe Democrat senators with cash alone. You need to bring gold bars to get the job done just so that the bribes hold value. We- oh, my God. <laughs> Flawless. Flawless execution, sir. Oh, I applaud you. That was clean. <clears throat> Damn. <laughs> If you would like to bribe us with gold bars as well, we will take it. I'll take Bitcoin too. Um, a lot easier to transport. A lot easier to transport. But I don't think Bob knows how to do the Bitcoin. 
So Democrat colleagues have called for him to resign, but not many, and still quite a few of them, including Montana Senator John Tester, is holding on to tens of thousands of dollars of his campaign funds giving to them while he is under these investigations. And he says he, but he still maintains, like still maintains, like he's fight, he's not, he's not going out easy. Bob he, Menendez is? Yeah, he's, he still maintains his innocence. On, C, on C-SPAN, he was uh, caught in the hallways, answered the question, he was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull out, I'm not going to give money back, I'm not going to, I'm innocent, and gets in the elevator. So what is he, where, how is he claiming that he got this money then? Yeah. Um, oh, there's John Tester, yeah. <laughs> Or just keep talking. Old, flat, flat top yeah. How does he claim that? You know, that's a great question. I have no idea. I haven't really seen any. I couldn't find any systematic defense. It's a hard thing to defend. I mean, think about it. I mean, gold bullion. <laughs> like, not gold coins. Bars. <laughs> like, I mean, like, <laughs> what are those, like a kilo? A I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the weight is of a gold bar. I've never seen one or held one in my hand because I'm a poor person. Well, well, well <laughs> while you're looking that up, yeah, we have our our Senator John Tester being questioned here and just refusing to uh, make comment on his, uh, right his $20,000 like, that he's uh, returning. Yeah. yeah, the staffer's just like, oh, not this. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this shit. Senator Tester, why are you still bankrolled by unethical Senator Bob Mendes? If you still want him to resign, why are you keeping his money? Sorry. Why are you still keeping his money? My email is Sarah underscore. Why won't you return his money, Senator? That's going to be the best way to reach our office for these questions. I'm sure it is, Sarah. Why you every aspect of your ethical pledge? So one of the things to remember is John Tester was elected in Montana on when his opponent was facing Bernie Madoff accusations, and it got very nasty. Mm. Um, so he did all these pledges about anti-corruption and not taking PAC dollars, even though it takes PAC dollars and all this other stuff that uh, he now, you know, of course, is getting pressure on to. Well, so return. let me clarify something. So this uh, reporter who who is pressuring Tester in the hallway here, he's he's saying you're keeping tens of thousands of his dollars to tester get money from menendez this is very common called joint fundraising committees and other things that uh candidates set up these are like legal functions to raise money for allies on your side right so conservatives have them and mods have and the democrats different functions the democrats like the house like progressive democrats have some and there, there are all these different um kind of tools that they use to um help their maximize donating donating to all the candidates that could matter in the national election. I see. So he, so tester got some money from Bob Menendez through one of these yeah. sort of pools or yes. whatever it is. Yep. Okay. Interesting. About $20,000. And he's not giving it back. He hasn't given it back so far. So that's a, that's one question. I'm not sure that was a reporter too. That could have been a tracker. Well, oh, whoever was, whoever was holding the camera, you know, <laughs> yeah. For for reference, a tracker. Do you want to explain? Well, what yeah, because the internet lost their mind. The, the like a couple of weeks ago when they discovered trackers were a thing. Yeah, and like I've been in politics so long, I was just like, well, yeah, of course it is. What's a tracker? Explain what a tracker. A tracker is, is someone who's paid for by the opponents to follow the candidate that you don't like around and get them on camera. So that way you can get. Um, uh, what was the famous one from Mitt Romney? The binders full of women, or the you know, opposing corporate taxes kind of quotes that got out of the Mitt Romney campaign because he was at like an event and he was just talking and then he said something that was kind of unpopular to the larger public or at least looked weird or 
was strange. Yeah, and, and trackers are just a very common thing, and they're usually just they, they go to every single opposition event, mm-hmm. and they're always got a camera. They got, but then the Mitt Romney thing, I think, is probably even more so. It's probably actually just planting a spy inside there. It's, it's yeah, like, that, it's probably some less of those so are like inside donor events. That yeah. that's not usually a tracker, but there's yeah. like there's been a lot of examples where um, trackers have been become the story too. Uh, it was a candidate in like the Dakotas, and the the. Uh, the candidate was trying to call him out in front of all of his supporters, like as to like draw attention to the campaign and how the campaign was being tracked now and how that was like a problem. And he accidentally uses accidentally or intentionally, I don't know what uses like a quasi like a racial epitaph to describe the tracker. Oh. And it became the story. The candidate got demolished until he had to pull out. Wow. Um, yeah. Trackers are, are a big part of campaigning nowadays. Hmm. Yeah. And they actually have organizations who specialize in just doing that, like recruiting yeah. young people to go be trackers wow yeah and there's a lot of gamesmanship around it it's too bad that that campaigns can't be run on issues anymore you know it's all attacks it's all negativity it's never been on issues (laughs) let me rephrase it's too bad that we can't maybe someday potentially (laughs) actually run a campaign on issues in my libertarian utopia (laughs) yeah exactly all the issues (laughs) it's because democracy is just a big game and you got to play the game accordingly to how it's played and it's like if if everybody was just trying to be have sophisticated talk about issues, like that'd be a very different human experience than what we have right now, right? For, for God's sakes, Adams called Jefferson a hermaphrodif- hermaphrodite yeah. with the effeminate t- with neither the effeminate touch of a woman nor the manliness. Of like a man. Like, 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 if, if you read old yeah. political ads from like the 1800s, like we're tamer than we used to be. Wow. Like yeah. like our politics is far tamer than we'll we talk used about to how now. divisive things were. You literally yeah. you're literally talking about elections that we had where one half of the country, you know, like left and then had to be brought back with a war that killed like 60 million Americans. Yeah. You have another uh, um, uh, the, the, rep- the republic where the rep- half of them were loyalists to the crown. You know, and then yeah. you had elections like these are. Very tense, polarized times. Well, in the the the, be, the beginnings of the spark of the Republican Party being created was because of a death in the like the floor of Congress, <laughs> right? Like there yeah. used to be duels that were happening. People were getting so caned. yeah, true. Dude got caned on the floor of con- floor of Congress, right? Yeah, of yeah. uh, uh, House Reps. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. You right. know what they say: spare the rod, spoil the rep. Ooh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, come on. Uh, yeah. That's out of Matilda. Yeah. It's, it's too soon. It's from a kid's movie. It's too soon movie. since that guy got killed. I can't even remember the really, guy's name. Like 150 years. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> How dare you? All right. We got one more thing to show you. And we got to get to it. I insisted. These guys wanted to call it early, but no. We're going to stick with it for one more reaction on human reaction. And that is Laura Ingram being super, super weird. Get ready to leave. Uva and Hannah Loreco and Mike um, uh, Loreg Micah. Sorry, I'm I'm not. Me- yeah, sorry, I'm messing up. Loreg uh, L- Sorry, uh, join me now. <laughs> oh, come um, on. <laughs> great to see both of you, Uva. I understand that you have two weeks to return to the local immigration office, the ICE office. Then what? Yeah, we have. We are supposed to come back in uh, two weeks from now to show our passports, renewed passports, to be ready to self-remove our our family back to Germany. Well, Hanalore, are you watching this play out um, at the at the border of the United States, where people five hundred thousand Venezuelans have already been given work permits without any? V- any examination of their claims for asylum, no investigation of all at all of their claims, 
yet they're being given temporary protective status. What do you think about that? Yeah, it is interesting. You know, we try to do it the right way and uh, we don't get the right to stay here or to immigrate. And now for 15 years, we fight for that right. And it seems there are two faces to this administration. Well, Uva, do you think you're being discriminated against here because of your cultural views, your your religious outlook? Uh, obviously, you decided to homeschool your children because of concerns about government-run schools. Um, do you think there's a double standard here, at the very least? Well, of course, we don't know exactly the motivation they want to uh, leave, uh, want us to leave the country right now, but. Uh, if that were the case, if they want us to be deported because of homeschooling, uh, then there would be discrimination and uh, that would be uh, a bad thing. But America used to be a free country and uh, people all from all over the world immigrated here to seek freedom. And we initially got freedom. We got uh, asylum granted by an, uh, a judge in Tennessee. And it was then the administration at that time uh, 12 years ago that uh, revoked it and, and, and turned it down. So we are, we are sad that that happened, but we hope and uh, believe that uh, there will be a change. I, I mean, it seems like your case, at least from everything I, un I understand about your case, and I've read extensively about it, seems like it's the classic case of persecution for your you know, religious views. I mean, that is what asylum was designed for, for people like you. And yet people like you are being told, bye, essentially. Uh, there's something really rotten about this. Uva and Hanalare, thank you so much. And sorry for botching your name. I appreciate it. I feel less bad about botching all the Ukrainian names earlier now that I'm not a professional broadcaster. <laughs> that inter that interview job. just felt very awkward. It's pretty cringe. <laughs> but great. what I want to point out to is she's right. The German government has decided that homeschooling is illegal, and this family didn't want to homeschool. So they came to America. They did said, want to homeschool. They did want to homeschool. Did I say didn't? Sorry. Yes. This family did, did want to homeschool. So they came to America and said, hey, our religion that says that the state education system is evil won't allow us to be there, and so we want to be here. And Laura Ingers says, yes, absolutely, you should be able to be here. And they should. Yeah. Now, when someone... Someone lives in a narco state of, of, of some Central American country or Venezuela, and they speak up to the government of Venezuela and say, hey, I don't want to, I think these policies are wrong, and I think we should have a new, we should back the speaker, not the presidente or whatever. And then they get a threat and they leave and they go to the southern border. They should also get an asylum. Absolutely. So what's confusing here? is if they're saying, oh, the president's a hypocrite, they give asylum to Venezuelans, but not to these German folks, totally get it. But one of the things that conservatives have been saying, Republicans have been saying, is that no one should get asylum. We should stop asylum seeking <laughs> because it can be abused. And totally understand, it can be abused. But what is your actual standard? What is your actual place that you're coming down to? And this is one of those things about immigration that seems so clear to me that I don't understand why there's not more consensus on, that the system is broken. That it should be a, a straightforward process. You're seeking asylum. Here you go. Boom. Uh, and that there is 
that that's a, an objective standard to meet and either you meet it or you don't and it's uniform rather than a situation like this where it's so clearly that you know human rights watch which is a kind of a lefty organization has even said that the socialist venezuelan government is well known for their policies of brutality torture and political persecution so people who come to the border have a case to, to be able to say that, but we say absolutely not. Chinese refugees who are coming through the southern border because it's a lot easier to immigrate or to, to illegally get to South America and then come up than it is to just come here because it costs thousands of dollars and decades to immigrate here legally. Mm-hmm. Of course, what they do is they come in illegally because they don't have a choice. If they're politically persecuted, that's what you would do too. And once again, there's a lot of all this panic about, oh, we don't know who's coming in and all that kind of stuff, which is understandable, right? Because the borders are a disaster. But the policy should be not let's stop this process of political asylum. It's how do we create a fast, objective way to qualify who is and isn't and then go through a process that, you know, a fully funded process to make it quick and efficient. Completely agree. Yeah, I don't think porous borders are the answer to either case, right? I mean, it's like there should be a legal system for people to come here because, I mean, this is a nation of of immigrants, right? Like we talk about that often right? Can't do what we do in the United States without, you know, the, the massive number of people who came here looking for our economic opportunity and, and were able to achieve that. And we certainly aren't embodying that by, you know, prohibiting people from, from coming here, but uh, which we are currently doing with our legal immigration system by making it so, you know, circuitous and difficult to actually come to the country legally. Right. And I think, I don't think people understand just how crazy it is. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars in poor countries to immigrate here illegally. Hundreds of thousands, depending on your circumstances. And file cabinets. I'm not talking a little bit of paperwork. I'm talking file cabinets. Like you can find these these examples from immigration lawyers of decades of litigation just to come here under an asylum case. So like, and, and additionally, we've never ever in the history of the country ever cracked down on just enforcement without and gotten the response that people want. The best case that we have is the Becerra program from the 1970s, where we did two things at once, increased amount of border enforcement while simplifying and uh, making more speedily and broader the legal immigration process. And then from the Becerra program today, all we've done is crack down on the, on the legal process and made it Byzantine and difficult while funding more enforcement. And that doesn't work. Additionally to that, you have all the bad stuff the Democrats are doing, such as signaling the signal that we're go- they're going to legalize illegal immigrants, which is bad, um, and other – there's all kinds of bad policies in this space that I actually completely agree with Republicans on. But it frustrates me that it gets broken down into – Open most, borders or closed borders. Yeah. Right? It's, or, just, it's, just these, it's just these words that are kind of vague and they don't really mean anything. Yeah, right? or like the, the, the rubric is – the only solution that actually boils down to that Republicans are willing to support because they're worried about anti-immigrant sentiment is funding border security more. Because don't get me wrong, us three in this room, we're like, yeah, we're an immigrant nation. Some people find that offensive nowadays. <laughs> some people say that, think of that as like some kind of giving something to the left, which I don't see that at all. That seems conservative to me. That's to articulate the melting pot. Absolutely. I mean, my, there are immigrants three generations back in my family you know, 
Like, of course. <laughs> well, well, the problem is because like putting into context of why there's so much fear that exists. And I, and I think the fear is rightfully so is like we just had Elon Musk yesterday being a better journalist than most journalists um, and went down to the border and talked with people. And, and uh, he live streamed this whole thing, talking to sheriffs, talking to a congressman. And he could literally just like turn the video and be like, yep, there's more people coming through. And there's just like a streamline of people that are coming through and some are getting processed, some aren't. And then they'll be like, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you in a few years. <laughs> about about this stuff like the the entire system is just completely broken in a mess so like there is a common ground here that i think can be let's fix the system but like and and i don't think it's as simple as just like we close the borders versus we have the borders open which seems to be where the paradigm exists in the conversation mm-hmm. is like it's it's much more complicated than that like we we, we need immigrants we, but we also should probably know who's coming in here like there's you know i think all i think all of these things can be true um, but in, and I, I very much kind of agree with Elon's sentiment. He just tweeted out earlier uh, this morning. He was saying that illegal immigration should be stopped, but I'm super in favor of greatly expanding and simplifying legal immigration. Anyone who proves themselves to be hardworking, talented, and honest should be allowed to be an American, period. Like, I, I think that's this, the general sentiment that we should have here. Problem, problem is a substantial amount of the voting public doesn't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, like I, and they I hear that and they hear giving up to the liberals, right? And that's the problem that we're at. We haven't established the baseline of immigration good in some time, right? Because it's so wrapped up into the Democrats' language matrix rather yeah. than like a, a like an upfront engagement with the problem and the solutions. Well, and, and that's my problem typically with conservatives on this issue is often like I don't really understand. There's never like a clear indicator of like, do you want no immigration? Do you want some immigration? What are the, like, there's no actual dialogue that seems to be happening in that area. And then on the democratic side, it's just like, are we just letting everybody flood in and we're signaling everybody should come in and get everybody onto the welfare system. And you know, like, like, like you know, I, I don't like either of those yeah. really. Right. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's just frustrating. Cause like it, the it, the talk around the issue seems to be incredibly sophomoric. It's just very talking point centric with no actual policy discussion on what should be happening mm-hmm. around the issue. Um, so Laura Ingram, you're right. These guys should get asylum, but so should the Venezuelans. And I really would wish more Republicans would feature the stories of Venezuelans that are also trying to do exactly the same thing and advocate for a simplified process that is straightforward and objective. And then, and then and rather than just the fear mongering in this space, um, because of obviously there's some fear deserved, but we should be more focused on the policy solutions that would actually make it better. So I think that's us, uh, it for us or wait, one more story. This is going to be a five hour episode <laughs> <laughs> as, as proven the, uh, go ahead. Why don't you, why don't you talk about it? You're kind of at the center of the story a little bit more so than I am. So. Even though I want to sure. credit for it, I take full responsibility for this decision. Well, so yeah, I will. I, I, will, I, will. I, I said this probably eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you two are the Kyle only takes two people. Full responsibility for this. <laughs> you two are the only two people ever to mention this idea ever in the history of time. True, <laughs> true, and real. Um, so yeah, back in January, one of our very first episodes, you mentioned it would be very strategic for the Libertarian Party to um, to endorse candidates in races uh, where they could have a greater strategic influence. Well, last weekend at the Montana Libertarian Party Officers Convention, a motion was brought to amend the bylaws to uh, make it possible for individuals and uh, 
party executive board members and affiliates to endorse candidates outside of the Libertarian Party specifically. Even if a Libertarian was running or filed in that race, so long as those individuals, the board or the affiliate felt that that candidate was going to uh, support and, and advance Libertarian principles. Thus trying to, you know, execute something along those lines. And um, this is in direct response to the issues that have come up in the last election cycle with a candidate like Sam Rankin, obviously not a libertarian, coming in, filing as a libertarian, running as a libertarian, leveraging the name recognition of last name Rankin, which, you know, a very important senator in Montana history, first uh, female senator in American history, correct? And the only one to vote against the entrance in World War II. Absolutely. In World War I. And, World War and was able to do so at the expense of the real libertarian candidate in that race. This is an opportunity for the Libertarian Party of Montana to to call those candidates out, which are able to do what they do because we have an open primary system, which doesn't require, you know, it, it allows any candidate from from any party affiliation to run in any race under any party banner. The Libertarian Party is is small. It doesn't have the the firepower to fight back against that, like the bigger two parties. And so this is a means by which the MTLP can defend itself. And it's an important move for the state specifically that applies here. And I think it's, it's a solid move in a direction that's going to hopefully provide the libertarian party of Montana, more ability to create influence and to field quality candidates and to support and praise candidates from other parties that, are coming the libertarian direction are advancing libertarian principles in ways that we find meaningful and strategic. Yeah. I think it's like from a strategic element, like I've been paying attention to everything that's been happening with the Mises caucus and the libertarian party over the last few years. And I'm glad that the takeover had happened because it's a much more strategic lens of how to utilize this third party that does get a significant amount of votes, but utilize it and, and use it as a weapon against bad candidates and then use it as a support structure against good candidates in the other parties like that that has been part of the model and the reason for the takeover so like you know if, if you have a someone running in your senate race who's actually like really good really high quality candidate that is part of just general libertarian principles running against it is is it's the dumbest thing you could possibly ever do right yeah, so you should strategic. back up and and promote that and then and then educate libertarian audiences on why this particular candidate of, of either party is actually a good candidate. Um, and especially if they've proven themselves and they have a, a solid record. Right. But, but then also just using, using it as like, we will not give this endorsement, which might give you three, four or 5% or something like that. We, unless you agree to commit to these certain promises. So it, it forces them and it moves the Overton window on candidates to be better. Exactly. Um, if, if handled properly, There's some of the executive elements of the libertarian party, we'll, we'll see if they actually handle these things and negotiate these things properly. But uh, I think it's a smart move to, to do that. I think so as well. And I think that there's a, there are other, other components there as well. I mean, this is, um, this is a, allowing libertarians in Montana to execute freedom of association, right. And, and freedom of speech through, through endorsing candidates that they believe to be, good liberty focused candidates regardless of party mm. um and i think that's that's really important and i think that it should be it should be supported more broadly so and we'll see you know how 
how things shake out, but I think it's an important step forward for, um, for the MTLP. Okay, if you've made it this far, we really appreciate you and uh, we will catch you in the next episode. Join our Discord. Join the Discord. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash humanreactionpod. And remember... In America today, you can't even bribe Democrat senators with cash alone. You need to bring gold bars to get the job done, just so that the bribes hold value.